In this episode of 92i Talks, broadcasting legends Larry King and Regis Philbin talk marriage, politics, sports, entertainment, the justice system, America's future, and living a successful life to the fullest. This conversation was recorded on June 13, 2016, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Hey. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That's it. Let's go. <laughs> Doesn't he look good? Suspenders every good. time. Hey. Every day. How old are you, Reg? How old am I? 84. I'm 82. Yeah. Wow. Is that good or bad? You know, I was thinking the other day. When I was a kid, no one was 80. <laughs> did you know? Did you know? No, no, no I don't. I, if I had uncles and all of that, God. Nobody was. Nobody 80. was in the 80s. I guess we're lucky, huh? Well, the world has changed. I didn't know anybody 80. I had an uncle, yeah. Izzy, who was 55 years old. Izzy, huh? Izzy. And he would come over the house. He was married to my mother's sister, Anna. And he was sitting in a chair and he'd go, ay. <laughs> ay. And he was like 55 years old. Yeah. And I, oh, God. I used to say to my brother, you think Izzy has sex? What are you kidding? He's 55. They oh don't have sex. Oh my God, of course. What a funny Uncle. story. Well, I got a lot of things here that, that I got to ask you. Okay, Reed. We, we want to hear you. Fire away, but I got some for you too, but go ahead. You were born in Brooklyn. I was born up in the Bronx, right? Oh. How do you think coming from Brooklyn impacted your life? I tell you the truth, I left Brooklyn but Brooklyn never left me. Uh, I, I just, it was a great place to grow up. Really? Mario Cuomo, my friend Herbie Cohen is here. We shared a lot of adventures together. And Mario Cuomo said to us once, I don't know what it is about Brooklyn. I'm from Queens. <laughs> Queens ain't the same. <laughs> you sure Brooklyn is different. Yeah. We just, maybe it was because we're an island. I don't know. When two Brooklyn guys get together, they, they haven't seen each other for 30 years, conversation immediately yeah, starts. Yeah. I don't know what it is. I know. Does Bronx have that? No. The Bronx, no. No. We, we never dated a girl from the Bronx. I what? I never dated a girl from the Bronx. Did you date anybody anywhere? <laughs> Did you? Well, what you go to the Bronx, you had to take two trains. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but... but did you expect this career to happen to you oh. as you were a kid of the Brooklyn? All I wanted to do, Reese, was be on the radio. Is that, that right? That was my yeah. dream, to be a radio broadcaster. And yeah. I was five years old. I would listen to the radio. I would imitate radio announcers. I would, I'd listen to the shadow. Or the, yes, or same here. Inner sanctum. Or, mm -hmm. uh, I would remember I'd go into the bathroom, and I'd close the door, and I'd go, a tale well calculated to keep you in... Suspense. So as a kid, you knew where you were going That's and what, what you wanted. wanted. Yeah. That's all I wanted. Didn't want to be a doctor, didn't want to be a fireman. Wow. And when my father died, I was only nine and a half. And I moved to Bensonhurst, kept that dream alive, never went to college. But one day, uh, James Sermons was director of announcers at CBS. I met him on the street here in Manhattan. And I asked him, I just want to be in radio. What do you suggest? And he said, go down to Miami. Because it's a big city yep. with a lot of stations and yep. no union. So uh, there's a lot of people on the way up or mm -hmm. on the way out. So where are we when you went down there? You, you were in your 20s, I guess, right? I was 23. 23. I took the bus, I took the train down to Miami. Right. Got off the train, the first thing I saw was a colored drinking fountain. Colored and white. And I'd never seen that. I'd never seen that. Yeah, I'd, I've never seen it either. So I drank out of the colored fountain. <laughs> it was good. What's then, the difference? Since sorry, got on a bus. Yeah. Driving over to Miami Beach to stay with my uncle. And I'm sitting in the back of the bus. The bus driver stops. And he says, you move forward. White's in the front, colored in the back. No kidding. I swear to God. I said, well, my father's colored. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's the greatest so story. So then I, I, I hung around. I tried out for jobs. It's a true story, Reach. Your name is Regis Philbin, right? Yeah. That's your birth name. Yes. 
Well, my birth name was Larry Zeiger, Z-E-I-G-E-R. Yeah, but when, when did it become king? Uh, it became king. My first day, I get hired at this small station, WAHR in Miami Beach. And I'd never been on the radio before, but they gave me a little test, and now I'm going to be on May 1st, 1957. I pick out all my records. I don't sleep the whole weekend. I'm so sure. And the general manager calls me into his office. He says, this is your first day on the air, kids. Small station. He says, what name are you going to use? I said, what's wrong with my name? He says, too ethnic. Uh, people won't know how to spell it or anything. Lord you Ziegler. Need, you need another name. Sure. So he had the Miami Herald open, and it was an ad for King's Wholesale Liquors. <laughs> and he said, uh, how about Larry King? That's a great name. I said, okay, uh, you're Larry King. Now I go in, I sit down. Les Elgard swinging down the lane is my theme song. Dun, 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 dun. Swinging down the lane. I fade the music, turn on the mic, nothing comes out. Bring up the music, fade the music. Were you nervous? Nervous. Scared to death. I looked right? at the clock. Yeah. It's nine o'clock. Now it's three minutes after nine, and all the audience is hearing is a record go up and down, <laughs> and I'm afraid to talk. And I learned something that the general manager kicked open the door to the control room, and he said, this is a communications business, damn it, communicate. And what I did, I opened the mic and I said, good morning, my name is Larry King. That's the first time I've ever said that. Really? Because I've just been given that name. And folks, this is my first day on the air. All my life I wanted to be on the radio and I'm scared. And well, so bear with me. And I learned something that day that later Paul Harvey would tell me and Arthur Godfrey. What you learned that day, and you've got it all your life, be yourself. Yeah, So exactly. if you're honest with the audience. Yeah. So once, I didn't realize it then, but once I told them, I got a new name, it's my first day on the air, any goof I make, yeah. they're going to understand. Right. <laughs> so I, I learned from, it's almost 60 years later, that's still true. Really? If you're honest with the audience, sure. you can't go wrong. Well... Here's, while we're talking about this, and this was your first job in the business, in this uh, what, the small town outside of Miami, Miami Beach. Yeah. Well, the, the, the story that I love about this is that uh, the guy who, who was on the, uh, your, your show, your, your staff, started at midnight, went till 6 in the morning. Right. He was off that night. And one night, the guy couldn't make it. And, and so they, they called on Larry. Larry, could you just sit in? for him tonight and, you know, get the music going and you'll, you'll get out of there at 6 in the morning. I love this story so much. I want you to listen. <laughs> Larry King is, is, is on the, the midnight show. About 12.30, if I, to, to, tell me if I'm wrong. About 12.30, the phone rings. There's nobody there but him. He picks it up. Hello. This woman says, I love you. I love your voice. I want to see you. I want to see you now. Uh, she said, I want you. <laughs> I thought he forgot it. Oh, you don't forget that. No. So she said, I want you. Yes, honest to God. But he said, I, I, I got Franken's here. I've got to play. I'll come over after uh, 6 o'clock, 6.30. I can be there. <laughs> no, I got to go to work. I want you now. <laughs> So he said, well, uh, let, let me think about this. And he, you, took, you took a number. And then he went around. And then he went into the, uh, the, the, the room that has all the albums. And he's looking. And he's looking. All of a sudden, he sees one, uh, Harry Belafonte. At Carnegie Hall. At Carnegie Hall. And how long does it go? 33 minutes. <laughs> I, I got time. So he, he, he gets it ready. He puts it on. He calls her on the phone. I'm coming down right now. You better, she says. He gets in the car. He's got it on. He's got to hear Harry singing because he's the only one left in this... In this uh... By the way, 33 minutes is all the time I need. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, he gets in the car. He puts on his radio in the car, and he's driving down to wherever she was. He, she gave him the address, and it's dark. People are asleep, but there's one... One house that's got a, the, the living room is all lit. And sitting in the living room on the couch is a beautiful lady. 
with a, with a little sexy dress on and also a, a large robe and so on. Larry's looking at her, says, okay, this will do, yeah. <laughs> Gets out of the car, walks up to the, to the, to the uh, room, she, to the house she's in, uh, and of course she left the door open and he opened the door. Now, uh, Harry Belafonte is still singing and she's got it on too. <laughs> and all of a sudden, Every day when the light said no, when the light said no, when the light, <laughs> he gets caught. Larry King, for God's sakes, is walking in and he's expecting this guy to sing 33 minutes, right? The record got stuck. She says, forget it, don't leave. Larry says, are you kidding? I've got to leave. Some, nobody's there. And, and Belafonte is saying, where the lights are low, where the lights are low. It killed you. It must have killed you to get out that night. But did. you did it. I, I, you went I back. Did, and it was masochistic. I was like 12 blocks I had to drive. I kept the radio on to listen to yeah, where course. the lights, where the lights. And I get to the station. All the lights are going on. The phones, people are calling in. And I'm apologizing, and the last call I pick up is must have been an older Jewish man, because I just said, WHR, I hear, Veda Nights, Veda Nights, Veda Nights. That's right. I'm going crazy with Veda Nights. How did you handle that? So I said, why didn't you, why didn't you just change the station? He said, I'm an invalid. Oh. And the lady is with me during the day, and this, this, the radio is on top of yeah. the bureau. Oh, oh I can't God. reach it. Yeah. So I said, what can I do for you? He says, play Havana Gila. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so she got, the lady got a little mad there. That I too. never saw her again. Really? Uh, she didn't thought. call you anymore? No, she never called again, and I never did the all. It's the only time I did all night until I started the live all-night show on the Mutual Network, yeah. which really propelled me. Yeah, well, that was a biggie, wasn't it? But broadcasting, you knew right away when you were a kid in Brooklyn, it. growing up, you, you wanted to be didn't in it. You love it. I I didn't think I would have a chance. And, uh, you know, I was in the Bronx. I was playing baseball in the in Bronx Park and uh, enjoying it. And football, we had a little. What football. was your first job? My first job in radio. Well, Television. you know, uh, I, my father was in the Marine Corps, uh, and he was out in the Pacific. And he uh, ran into uh, Moose Kraus, who used to play for uh, Notre, Dame. Notre Dame. And uh, so the Moose was telling him all these stories, you know, about Newt Rockney and the whole thing. And my father came home and said, you gotta go, you gotta go to Notre Dame. So I, I went to Notre Dame and, and that's uh, how it happened for me. And did you work at their radio station? No, I didn't, I didn't. I didn't think I had anything. I didn't do anything. So where did you go to get a job? Well, I, uh, I, it, in this, in the, on this base, which is uh, in, in Coronado, um, they used to have a, 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 a room where you could, you, you could live in, you know. So there were two, two Marines in there. They were majors. Of course, they started out as privates, but in Guadalcanal, each ship became a, a, a lieutenant to take care of the guy that just got killed. So they were tough guys, especially this one guy. And he said to me, so what are you gonna, it was time for me to leave. I got to know these guys. The war was over, everybody was leaving, and I was free to go. And I, you know, they came in to say goodbye. And this guy said to me, so what are you gonna do with the rest of your life? I said, you know, uh, as a kid, I used to listen to uh, radio. Uh, see, what, what was the name of the, uh, the, the big store, the big uh, show on, on radio? Uh, it was on every night, Bing Crosby was on. Singing. Oh yeah, it was. Yeah, I remember that. You remember that? Anyway, <laughs> Nat King Cole was his piano. Nat King Cole. It was great. But the guy said, "What are you going to do with your life?" I said, "I don't know. I, I'd like to try, but I." He said, "Don't you know you could have anything you want in this life? You've only got to want it bad enough." Now this guy was a. He was a killer. This was. <laughs> do you want it? I said, "I better calm him down." I clicked my hands, gave him a salute, said, "Yes, sir, I want it." He says, well, then get in the car and go and get it. So I drove up to uh, Hollywood, and, and I got a, got a, a show. That I carried furniture and swept the floors. And did the we all do. Yep. But there's something magical about this business. Mm -hmm. It's the best business in the world. Yeah. It's it, a joy to be in it. 
I had no idea. Did you have any idea you'd be? No, absolutely not. I, that I'd None. be seen around the world. I couldn't believe it. You know, when CNN started and Ted Turner hired me, and then when we went satellite around the world. Yes. And I was known, it was unbelievable to me. Wow. I went to South Africa to make some speeches for a bank, and I landed at the airport, and we're walking down. I'm going to Mandela's house for uh -huh. lunch. And we passed by a hut, a hut. And the guy looked through the hut and he said, Latin King live! <laughs> uh, I said, Jesus Christ. <laughs> they know you, huh? So freaking weird. Oh, yeah. Oprah Winfrey told me she went on a photographic safari to Africa. And it's obvious that the great white hunter who's in charge of the safari doesn't know her. You know, he's treating sure. her, he doesn't know her. She says, you don't know me? Oprah's telling me the story. He says, no. She says, you know Johnny Carson? No. Oh. He says, do you know, do you know Tom Brokaw? No. Then the great white hunter says to her, you know Larry King? <laughs> <laughs> so that, all of that is still a flip to me. So sure. when you ask about Brooklyn, I'm still the little Jewish boy in Brooklyn mm -hmm. who wants to get on the radio. So all this has happened to me. And sometimes, Regis, I feel like I'm looking at myself. Uh-huh. Like it's someone else. Yeah. If my father were alive, he wouldn't believe this. I mean, I can't. Mm. So I, I had two young boys. Yes. Three grown children. Great-looking boys. I, oh, and I can't believe, I can't believe my life. I pinch myself every day. Well, but, but uh, from this place where you were, just outside of Miami, you were then moved to Miami, right? Right. And you, how, how many years were you there? Uh, I've had the life split in three different ways. 20 years in Miami, 20 years in Washington. Right. I moved to Washington those. National Show and in CNN, and 20 years now in L.A. Wow. So next May 1st, I'll be on the air 60 years. How many years have you been on? Uh, 60. I, well, let's see. I got out, the war was over, and I got out in uh, uh, 1955, and uh, that's when I started uh, cleaning up uh, Channel 13. In, uh, so you're 62 years. Yeah, my 62 years, yeah, you're right. Uh, well, think about it, so yeah. sitting here, yeah. sitting here is 122 years of broadcasting. Do people really care? Do you think they care? I hope they look at it. Yeah, I hope they care. But you started out as a disc jockey, right? Yeah, I was a disc jockey for a couple of years, but then there was this restaurant, Pumpernick's, on Miami Beach, 67th and Collins. Charlie Bookbinder owned it. And he used to listen to me in the morning. I did a funny disc jockey show, kind of like Imus. Yeah. And uh, so he liked me, and, and it was a 24-hour restaurant, a deli, very successful. But the slowest hour was 10 to 11 in the morning because it's not breakfast and not lunch. That's right. So he says, well, you finish at 9. I'll arrange with the station. You do a show from Pumpernick's from 10 to 11 every morning. So I do disc jockey 6 to 9, drive up to Pumpernick's, and I make an extra couple of dollars. And from 10 to 11, I'm on at Pumpernick's. Wow. And I, we had no producer. And I would interview guys coming in. I would interview people walking in, you know, salesmen, conventions. Terrific. And one day, Bobby Darren walked in. Right. I had, we know, no one booked him. He was an insomniac. He'd listened all night. Uh, so he came in. I interviewed him. And then that show caught on, and the papers wrote it up. So I started. Danny Thomas came in. Jimmy Hoffa came in. Sure. And so it became like a parade. Then I got a nighttime radio show and I became a talk show host. I thought I'd be a sports announcer. Really? Yeah, I love sports, I, and that's I, what I, I wanted. You, you would have made a good one. I but, wanted uh, to be Red Barber or Vince yeah, Kelly. Yeah, sure. But then I found my niche. Mm -hmm. I loved asking questions. Mm. I loved asking, and a lot of people helped me. Arthur Godfrey was great to me. No kidding. Jackie Gleason was the Oh, best. he was there a lot for you. Oh. What about uh, Rickles? Did you see Don Rickles? Oh, Rickles. <laughs> I know you're working with Rickles. <coughs> yeah. <coughs> Don Rickles, I met him in 1958. He was working at Franklin's, uh, Frank, Murray Franklin's nightclub. In? Miami Beach. Miami Beach. And I'm doing the show at Pumpernick's. Right. And Rickles comes to the show. 
dressed as a busboy. <laughs> and he comes walking through the audience and he sees a fat lady and he goes, what are you ordering butter? <laughs> and I couldn't believe him, he was hysterical. And a, French, and a friendship grew up then. Oh God. has lasted all these years. Yeah. And Don was just, when my daughter was born, her name is Kaya. He called me up and he said, is, is that a kid or a canoe? Uh, he, he, I, went, I went to see him in Miami Beach at the Fontainebleau when he worked in the big room. Right. Now he made the big room. Uh-huh. And Sidney Poitier came running in and he sat us at the same table. Me and Sidney Poitier, I didn't know him. Now he's a friend. I didn't know him then. And Rickles comes walking out on stage. He looks around and he goes, boy, Larry, you'll hang around with anything. <laughs> and he looked at Sidney Poitier and said, Sidney, I don't know what to say. There's no watermelon. <laughs> There's no fried chicken. Yeah. <laughs> and then he turned around to the man. Is he coming to get me? <laughs> yeah, right. But I, you, you know, he's He can get lovely, away with anything. Man. He's a lovely, oh, warm... He he's the greatest guy. Decent, compassionate, beautiful human being. You're absolutely Tragedy right. lost his son. Yes. But I love I loved Don Rickles, and I know you do. Oh, I do, too. He, uh, in fact, he, tomorrow night, you're on with him on Jimmy Fallon. He doesn't know it. Yeah. We're, I'm going to surprise him tomorrow. It's going to be us. a big surprise. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I have... The, Regis is going to so jump much. food out of a birthday cake. It's, it's, <laughs> I'm going to bring a big cake out gonna, of it. That's, that's all I know. It's going to revolutionize. It'd be funny if you got out of the cake with those uh, suspenders. Oh, about the I mean? suspenders. Yeah. People ask me, how did you start the suspenders? Yes. I had had... A funny start. Okay. You know, you know, you know what foxhole humor is. It's funny now. Yes. Wasn't funny when. Exactly. But I had a heart attack and then heart surgery. Mm. And I used to wear on television, and you know, I'd wear half sweaters. I never liked jackets much. And I went to dinner with my ex-wife Sharon, mm -hmm. beautiful lady. And she said to me, "Why don't you try something different? Why don't you try suspenders?" I said, I never wore suspenders. She says, it might look good. You, know, you lost some weight, you yeah. look good. So I wore suspenders, and three people called in and said, I look good. It's all a juke. It's all it took. It's all out of here. You've been wearing them ever since. I've been wearing suspenders. Do you sleep since. in those suspenders? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're attached to a pajama. No. Want to hear, you know, yeah. when you say things are funny in retrospect. Yeah. I'm... On the air with the Surgeon General of the United States, Dr. Coop. Mm -hmm. And we finish CNN, and he says to me, You don't look good. Are you still smoking? I said, Yeah. I don't like the way you look. Now I go to do my radio show all night. David Halberstam, the writer, is the guest. Yes. He says to me, You don't look good. Now I'm hearing, You don't look good, you don't yeah. look good, you don't look good. I go back home. I get a pain in my right shoulder, it wouldn't stop. Just, do you ever have any heart procedure? No, not, not like this. No, it was just running down a heart. I don't know what it was. I called just my one doctor. of the, just one of the arms. Right yeah, side, okay. not left side, and it wasn't the chest. And I called my doctor and he said, that could be gallbladder. Sometimes it's refractive uh -huh. pain. He says, why don't you go to, go to GW Hospital, I'll meet you there. So at nine o'clock in the morning, my producer drives me to George Washington Hospital, and as we're pulling in, I'm smoking. As we're pulling in, the pain stops. Like, you know. Mm -hmm. So I said, we don't have to stay here, but the cop made us move. Oh. So we parked in the emergency parking. So I go in, and this mob, the emergency room is mob, and this guy comes running up. They have watchers in the emergency room uh -huh. who look at people. Yeah. And he said to me, are you a heart patient? I said, no. He says, I think you are. Just by looking at yeah, you, Yeah, it said. was all gray. Oh, yeah, okay. So he took me in. I was in the same cubicle where Reagan was taken. Oh, no kidding. Wow. Where this... they dedicated that emergency room to Nancy Reagan. I was there for the dedicate. Anyway, I'm in this cubicle. I'm sitting there. Producer's there with me. And the doctor says to me, I know your pain is gone. Yeah. But I don't like the way you look. <laughs> I'm going to stay here because I think that pain's going to come back. So another couple minutes later, the pain comes back. They take some blood. They go up, and they're looking at the screen, at the blood result. Yeah. Suddenly, he turns around. A blue light goes on, and the doctor and three nurses come running toward me. 
And I said to my producer, I do not think this is a pulled muscle. <laughs> and he said to me, Mr. King, you're having a heart attack. Oh, my God. And I said, am I going to die? And he said, good question. Swear to God. He said, that's why, right away. that's why they pay you guys the big bucks. Yeah. <laughs> he says, we, we don't know. Oh. You're having a right side heart attack. We're going to give you this TPA. It's a medicine that breaks up the clot. And we'll see. I'm all wired up in the hospital. Two days later, my friend Herbie, who's here, he comes to visit me in the hospital. Right. The wires everywhere. Herbie walks in. I says, Herbie, I lean forward, pull out all the wires. I deadline outside. I'm like, they come running in like the yeah. patient Why, sure. 3D is dead. Yes. <laughs> I pulled everything out. <laughs> so anyway, I go home, stop smoking, never smoked again. But about three months later, I got a little pain. I know I've not smoked since. I go to the doctor and they said, you need open heart surgery. You got to have open heart mm. surgery. It's a true story. So I said, I want to go to New York to do it. I want to die in New York. <laughs> I have no faith in this. And I, I, I want to die in New York. This is Washington Hospital, but I want to die in New York. So the doctor says, okay, we're going to get you a great doctor, Dr. Wayne Isom, who did your friend Letterman. Yeah, and me. And you had a heart procedure? Yes. You just said you didn't. <laughs> you forgot? I did forget, but... Uh... <laughs> That guy was my doctor. Okay, so I'll give you to Wayne. Don Rickles. Wayne Iser's story. Uh, so, Wayne Iser's my yeah. doctor. I get to the hospital. I'm going to have this surgery on a Monday. This is Sunday morning. It's raining. It's the last day of November, 1987. I walk into the hospital. I'm scared to death. My brother's with me. And standing there is the president of the hospital and Governor Cuomo, who's a friend of mine. Uh-huh. And they're there to greet me. And the president of the hospital says, you don't have to check in. We'll handle all the formalities. And they take me right up to the 15th floor, New York Hospital. And I go, and he, and he takes me into this special room. He says, this room is for you, Mr. King. Inlaid carpeting, beautiful television set. The only thing that told you was the hospital was the hospital bed. Everything else was perfect. Wow. View of the East River. Yeah. And he says to me, Mr. King, I'll have you know, the Shah of Iran stayed in this room. And I said, as I recollect, he died. <laughs> how, how, oh, my God. How, how about we go to a ward where everyone goes home? Now, the next morning, I meet my surgeon. You don't meet your surgeon until you have been in surgery. And in comes this guy with a 10-gallon hat, cowboy boots. And he says from the door, Mr. King, you're going to do right fine. Right, fine. I looked at your film. No problem. I'm going to do right, fine. I, I discovered then, by the way, that all heart surgeons are either Jewish or from Texas. <laughs> There's no heart surgeon from North Dakota. They don't exist. Anyway, he comes over to me. And it's true. You know Wayne. Yep. He starts. They do this tapping. Yeah. That's, I think, the first thing you learn in doctor school. And I look down and he has no right thumb. Wayne Isom has no right thumb. Never do that. And I think he operated on me too. You go he, ahead. He had no right thumb. I said to him, what do you say in a situation like that? So I said to him, you know, Doc, I've had this strange habit all my life. When I meet people, for some reason, I count their fingers. <laughs> That's funny as hell. And with you, I get to nine. <laughs> oh, my And he said God. he had a shearing accident. His mother yeah. was shearing leaves, and they, she cut off his thumb. Wow. And so it made him ambidextrous. So you, the great patient, Regis Philbin, yeah. had a doctor right. that did surgery which you forgot about. Yes. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. you didn't right. know he had nine fingers. I can't get over it, because uh, when, when did I have this? It was... Uh, like, I don't know, the end of uh, 1990, uh, I called Letterman, who had had that as a hop operation. Letterman said, let me handle this, Regis. And he got me the, the doctor and another doctor. And uh, he said, everything's going to be fine. Did you just go uh, on, on Monday 
or Sunday or whatever day of the week that they want you. Well, it turned out that they wanted me on like Tuesday morning. They're going to open heart? Yeah, they're going to open my heart. So I said, great, I'll, I'll wait and I'll wait till... Uh, so, but I couldn't fall asleep. I, it was on the six, I was, uh, they were going to do me at 6 o'clock and they were going to send a car to get me at 5.30. And, but I couldn't sleep. So I tuned on Letterman. And Letterman says, well, tomorrow Regis is going to go in and they're going to rip him open like a lifestyle. <laughs> it's like, what? A life? Li take life away from me? Honest to God, he got me crazy. So I couldn't sleep at all. I go back and, and I'm scared he was to death. Scared to death. I'm, I remember asking the doctor. I said, "Well, how, what do you do?" He says, yeah. "Well, we take an electric saw and we go right down your yeah. chest." Yeah. He said, "Is it, it Borg Warner?" He goes, "Yeah." I said, "They're the same people chop down trees." <laughs> <laughs> we pull your chest apart, mm. move your heart, yeah. and we put you on a heart machine. That's exactly now, Regis. You forgot that? I forgot. <laughs> I'm a, this, this is a story, Regis. I'm trying to get you. This is your, this is your day. I know, but my God, Regis. Honest to God, the things that happened. In, and so... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Letterman uh, got me crazy, though. Of he, course. He, he's going to bust him open like a lobster. <laughs> I almost didn't want to go. Weren't, anyway, I got it done. you scared? I was scared, yeah. What were you? A little bit? Oh, a little bit. God, it, was, it was crazy. It's nerve-wracking. I'm not good with hospitals. I used to take a walk with the Joey Bishop. Uh, you in, were his announcer? In the 60s, yeah. He was looking for around for an announcer. He saw me on the, on the show that I was doing. He brought me in, and I got the job. And uh, we would go for a walk. We had the... We had the, uh, the his uh, his uh, stage was on, uh, on uh, Vine Avenue and uh, one of those long, narrow streets. Anyway, we used to walk all the way up to Vines, to uh, Hollywood Boulevard and over to Cuenca and back down. And one day, I, I, I couldn't think, I had to do all the talking, he didn't talk, he just walked. And I had to talk, and I, I did it okay. But five months in to it, every day, first time I went to see him, the guy said, go ahead, take Joey for a walk, he's nervous. Hi, Joey, let's go for a walk. Get out of here! I got things on my mind! I've got... Okay, Joe, relax. So the next five minutes, it was him. Let's go. And we walked. And we continued to walking. And so one day, uh, I had nothing to talk about. It was like a 25th... Uh, uh, well, I don't know. He was there three years. Anyway, it was in the second year. And I was... We 45 minutes walking with him. So nothing to walk. So finally, I said to him... What did you want to be when you were a kid? He said, when I was a kid in Philadelphia, 10 years old, I'd stand in front of the, the subway and I would tell jokes five o'clock in the afternoon when people were leaving and they would form a, a circle around me and they loved it. I knew I could do it. I said, geez, that, that sounds great. That's all I could think of. I go another block and he says, what about you? What did you want to do? I said, you know, when I was a kid, I used to listen to... Uh, the, the uh, shows that had all the, the singers on. Bing Crosby was on from 9.30 to 10. And I loved his songs and all of that. And I, I, I learned one of them, a couple of them. And the, but I only sang them to myself. I never told anybody I wanted to do that. So a couple of, a month goes by and Bing Crosby's the guest on the show. He's going to sit next to me. I was thrilled. And... Uh, Bing, uh, Joey asked Bing to sing a song, and Bing sang a song, and the audience loved it. It was just great to hear him sing. Go to commercial break, come out of it. Bishop says, Regis, sing a song for Bing. I had never sung before in my life to anybody. And so Bing turned, looked at me, and I, every time it rains, it rains, pennies from heaven. Do you know this? Don't you know each cloud contains pennies from heaven? You'll find your fortune falling all over town. Be sure, sure that your umbrella is upside, upside down. down. Trade, Trade them, them for a package of sunshine and flowers. And if you want the, the things, things you, you love, love you, you gotta must have showers. So when, when you, you hear, hear it thunder, thunder don't run under a tree. 
there'll be pennies from heaven for you and me. I didn't know you knew that song. We, I, we, you know, I used to talk that to him. That was your singing debut. That was you know, when you're talking about breaking in and you got a host. Yeah. It's a great story. Sid Caesar. Mm. When Mel Brooks hosted the show of shows, yeah. he was the chief writer. Right. Carl Reiner, Sid Caesar. Right. And Howard Morris was a young Yes, I remember him. Gets hired by the show of shows. Mm. And he's thrilled. He's going to be working with Mel Brooks. Oh, yeah. Carl Reiner says to Howard Morris, you're here now, you're part of the troupe. Listen, if Mel does something crazy, don't bring it up. Just let him have it. Mel's a little nuts. Never mention it, okay? That's funny. That, then he goes to Mel. Carl Reiner then goes to Mel. He says, listen, Mel, I told him that you might do something crazy and he should never bring it up. Mel says, fine. A couple of days later, Mel says to Howard, let's have lunch. They go to have lunch, walk him back in New York, Mel grabs him, pushes him up against the wall, and says, give me your wallet. Give me your wallet. <laughs> Howard gave him the wallet, and he kept it forever. <laughs> Howard had to replace the wallet, replace the credit cards, replace all, but he couldn't bring it up to him, right? And it was funny, so like a month or two later, Mel would say, Howard, you want to have lunch? Oh, I got something to do. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You know, there was one afternoon that uh, I was at Notre Dame to see a football game. Oh. And you had never been to Notre Dame. Never been to Notre Dame. And I said, well, well can you join me sometime? And, and one day you got in your plane? They were playing Syracuse, I think. I think so, yeah. I can't remember where they anyway, were playing. I flew out on a private plane. Right. I flew out there. I'd never been to South Bend, Indiana. That's right. So I took, uh, I'm taken out there. And people, you know, they, they loved you. Did you notice how they backed away and let you through? Well, he was funny. I'm walking down, and the people are yelling, Larry, Larry. And we're walking out onto the field, Larry. And he goes, I give him millions of dollars. Yeah, why? why? Don't, <laughs> Where the hell is Rangers coming? And he's Jewish. <laughs> so I take him down. We went to the lake. That the, the ducks were there on the lake. The school looked great. It, it really is a great school. And then there's a grotto. Oh. There's a grotto. And I said, gee, I, I wonder if Larry minds, but, but let's go in. I want, us, I want him to see the, all the people that are in there lighting candles and Do a prayer. saying a prayer. So I, I know I'm Catholic. I know he's Jewish. But, but come on, let's go. So we go in there. And uh, we... Uh, we uh, Get down on my knees. Got, we got down on our knees. And I don't know what, what prayer you did, but I did a little prayer. <laughs> and people were ecstatic. They, they loved it. They couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe you walking around. And you made the headlines the next day. <laughs> the team played somebody and won the game, but they didn't get, you got the, the headlines. Larry King comes to Notre Larry Day. King comes to Notre Dame. You're a what, big shot. What I prayed was, I said, Jesus, you're Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. In fact, someone once asked me, if you could interview God... What would you ask him? If I could interview God. That's what I was asking. And I said, I would say, did you, did you have a child? Because if he says no, <laughs> chaos. Oh, my God. Chaos in your world. Oh, my God. That, <laughs> that's so funny. So funny. Oh, Reese, you know, you look back. I, I find, does aging bother you? A little bit, yeah. Bothers me. Because I, I don't want to leave the earth. I don't want to not exist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know what you mean. Sure. And I'm in fairly good health of you. Yeah, okay. Every now and then I got to go like that, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm fine. Okay, but... <laughs> I think about it, and I just, because I'm so curious that I think, God, if I, if I depart, yeah. who's going to win the World Series? I know. Who's yeah. going to be the next president? Who's going to? There you So many questions. The Dodgers would be angry, would, would go crazy without you there. Yeah. But I'm lost without you regularly on television, Reach. Well, <laughs> I don't know. 
You are an American treasure. I did 25 years out in L.A. And, and 28 more here every morning. And then I thought, well, it's time to, to quit. Do you miss it? Yes, I do. Not every day, but once in a while I feel like, gee, I wish I could get up there. And I miss, I, I do my shows, I, but I tape them. I used to do live. I yeah. love working live. Yeah, you know? yeah, sure. Live, the immediate Live is the best. Sure. Mm -hmm. What's going to happen? The yeah. world ain't going to end. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, but it's television. Yeah. You know, the people think there was a funny cartoon in the New Yorker once. About what? They was doing brain surgery. You see four doctors uh -huh. stand around, and one's about to cut the head open, and the one guy says, hey, it ain't television. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You, and you were there to hear that, huh? <laughs> now, I, we got some things here. When did you know that you wanted to be a broadcaster? How old were you? In? Five. You were five years I old? I remember it. And you listened to the radio when you heard, heard all boy, those I, guys. Little boy, the only thing I wanted to do. And you started out as, uh, as a disc jockey. And so all I ever wanted to do was to be on the radio and to... I, it was just like a, just a lifetime. I know that the Jewish thing is, you know, you got to be a professional. Mm -hmm. And they didn't consider radio, but my mother encouraged me. Is that right? It's like that old joke, they elect the first Jewish president. They elect a Jewish president. That's right. And the mother of the president is sitting in the third row at the inaugural. Mm-hmm. Jewish president's up on the stage, and the reporter goes over to the mother and says, what do you think? Your son is president. She says, you think that's good? His brother is a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gee, that's so funny. That's a great... That's a great... That's I a, love jokes. Don't you love jokes? That's a great story. I love Joke. I do a lot of speaking. I know you do a lot of speaking. When I go out and speak, I tell stories. Yeah. All the, I do is tell stories. Absolutely. But I love a good joke. I'll tell you a couple of good jokes. Yeah, let's they, hear them. Just for laughs. We're Come having on. fun. There's a, there's a train that goes every night from New York to Chicago. It's an all-Pullman train, all-sleeper. Leaves New York at about 11, gets to Chicago 9 in the morning. A man checks into the berth and he's getting ready, you know. And suddenly the door opens and a woman comes in. Now, normally Amtrak would not sell a ticket to a woman and a man not married to each other, but it was the last opening and she had to get to Chicago. Sure. She said she didn't mind. So she got in a lower berth, the man gets in the upper berth, and the train begins its trek to Chicago. After a little while, the man leans forward and says, Ma'am, I'm a little chilled. Could I borrow a blanket? And she looks up and says, You know... We're going to be on this trip for 10 hours. <laughs> We're never going to see each other again. This is our one night together. <laughs> Want to play man and wife? Guy says, sure. She's good. Get your own goddamn blanket. <laughs> Very funny. That's a, and another good joke I heard, Regis. <laughs> another good joke. <laughs> This little, the lumber camp is hiring guys to chop down trees. Yeah. And the foreman is interviewing people, and a one-armed midget walks in and says, I'm here to chop down trees. The foreman says, you're a one-armed midget. He says, I can chop down trees. The foreman says, take an axe, go out there and chop down trees. Midget goes out, one arm, whack, 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 knocks down 10 trees in a minute. He comes back to form and says, you are the greatest tree cutter I have ever seen. You're a one-armed midget. You're the best tree cutter <laughs> in the world. Where did you work before this? He says, the Sahara forest. He <laughs> says, you mean the Sahara desert? Well, now. <laughs> oh, gee. That's a That's great, a great joke. story. That's funny as hell. A great joke when you, when you get a good joke. Oh, yeah. Listen, they, they want to know some names that uh, you, you have lived with uh, all of your life. And that they've written out this. Valmer Putin. I got along with him very well. I, I interviewed him in New York. And then when I was announced that I was leaving CNN, he called in and asked to be on. No kidding. He came on for an hour. And he said, Larry, don't go. We love you. And this is funny. He invited me, I couldn't make it, to visit him, and 
visit Moscow. I later got to Moscow, but I didn't see him on that trip. But the call, I was at, <laughs> I was at the Palm Restaurant in L.A., and the maitre d' comes over to me and says, listen, this is some clown fooling around. There's a guy on the phone who says he's Vladimir Putin. <laughs> oh, my God. And I, I talked to him through his interpreter. Uh-huh. But I liked him a lot. I, I asked him what happened to that. Remember the submarine that went yeah, down? Yeah. I said, what happened to your submarine? He said, it sunk. Yeah. <laughs> All he had right. a good sense. And a, a surprising thing I learned with him, I asked him, for, I don't know how it came up, where, when he was head of the KGB, mm-hmm. where do you like to vacation? And he said, Jerusalem. No kidding. Yeah. Oh, geez, that's, that's nice to hear. Yeah. All right, I got some more names. Okay. Marlon Brando. Marlon Brando. Marlon Brando did something to you. Oh, I, well, I loved him. I got, really got along with him. Naturally, he didn't do interviews, but he had agreed to do one interview. And he was, I was staying at the Wilshire Hotel in Beverly Hills. And they said, he's going to call you. They're interviewing his Friday. This was like Tuesday. Phone rings, I pick it up. He said, hello. He says, uh, Larry King, this is Marlon. I swear to God, I said, Marlon who? Because <laughs> Marlon Fitzwater was the press secretary to George Bush. Anyway, he said, I'm going to send a car. I want to have lunch. Instead of sending a car, he drives up wow. in a Chevy. Uh-huh. I get into the car. The doorman says, I don't believe this. And he's driving me around Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. And we're singing songs. Like really? you like Yeah, to. yeah, yeah, sure. He'd do the first line, I'd do the second right. line. Then we drove around, I went up to his house, had lunch. Now I got him on the air for an hour and a half. When we finish, for some reason, he kisses me <laughs> on the lips. <laughs> Flush on the lips. You can get it on Real, your lips. Uh, was it brief kiss or was it? <laughs> and, I did. and then he said, no. He kissed you on the lips. On the lips. Now. I have never been kissed on the lips by a man in my life. I'm not, I'm not you know, I'm heterosexual. Are you looking at me like you want it again? I, I'm <laughs> starting to look good, Rage. Go ahead, let's hear it. So I always say the same thing. I've never been kissed on the lips by a man. Marlon Brando kissed me on the lips, and I have a confession. <laughs> you, you I loved can't it. stop thinking about him. <laughs> It's a great story. All right, Elizabeth Taylor. She was great to me. I really loved her. She had, Regis, her eyes were purple. She's a beautiful woman, yeah. Purple. And she was short. Yes. I think she was just five feet tall. Mm -hmm. But she was gorgeous. Mm -hmm. And I had her on, I had her on a lot, and she was wonderful to me. And she brought once her jewelry collection. And she had the rings and things. And I said, is this costume jewelry? She goes, Wow, costume jewelry? No. This is the real thing. She had a ring on, it was signal ships. Wow. (laughs) David Letterman, now, did you have a... I had Letterman on on television. I had him on my all-night radio show. We had a funny... You were on his show how many times? Oh, 151, I think. David is a strange guy. Tell me about it. (laughs) I was was on his show about seven times on television. Mm Mm-hmm. The last time, he inter- you know, he gives you a big introduction, mm-hmm. goes the saying, and you walk out, and he gives you a little hug, and you say, and as he gives me the hug, he says, I hate my tie. Oh, that's him, yeah. I sit down, we do, and then, uh, then we break for commercial. As soon as we break, he goes, I hate this tie. I said, what's the matter? He said, I can't stand it. Why did I wear this tie? I'm thinking about this tie. I said, you've been thinking about this tie? Are you going to change ties? <laughs> And he goes, no, they'll notice. They'll notice. That, yeah, that he was like that. You're right. But we, when I did my all-night radio show, it's coast to coast, a guy called in who was running a gas station, and he was listening to the two of us. Yeah. And he was asking some questions, and as he's talking to us, we hear a little ring. A guy pulls in to get gas. He said, I got to go get gas. So David said, let him says, when the guy pulls him with the car, have him come get on the phone. <laughs> so this guy gets on, hello. <laughs> oh, Hi, this is David Letterman. I'm here with Larry King. How much gas you need? <laughs> he says, guy says, you're putting me on. <laughs> and David paid for his gas. Oh, is that right? <laughs> David was, he is, 
I understand you were just with him. Yeah, two weeks What's ago. What's with the full beard? It's getting bigger. <laughs> I, I didn't want to bring it up because, you know, I, I, it, it's unsettled me to see that beard. How old is this kid now? The kid is uh, about, I guess he's all going to be 12. Yeah. So there's a couple more people in there okay. now. Okay. How about uh, Frank Sinatra? Did you have anything to do with him? Oh, Frank. Frank became a great friend, and uh, he was very good to me. Tell about Sinatra. If he liked you, mm -hmm. you could do no wrong. Yeah. If he didn't like you, you could do no right. But I had a great experience with him. First time I met him, it really worked. It's a great story. I know we're going to take some questions. Yeah, we are. But this, this is a really classic, good story. Jackie Gleason was great to me. And uh, we were at his house one night, and Jackie used to play mind games. Thank you. And there was a couple people there, and there was a doctor. And Jackie said to the doctor, what in your profession is impossible? And the doctor said, they'll never make blood in a laboratory. Blood you have is the blood you have. We'll never manufacture mm -hmm. blood. And he said to me, what's... I said, well, I do a talk show every night from 9 to 12. Frank Sinatra's at the Final Blue. Frank Sinatra to do my talk show from mm -hmm. 9 to 12. He doesn't wow. do interviews. That's impossible. And Gleason said, what night is he dark? I said, Monday. He said, you got him. No. I said, what? He said, you got him next Monday. Really? I said, Jackie, you sure? So I go back, and on the air that night, I said, next Monday, Frank Sinatra. Now people are calling in. You're kidding me, man. Now, Friday, the general manager of the station calls me and says, listen, we're taking a full-page ad in the paper. Mm -hmm. We're saying that Frank Sinatra's coming on. We've been calling the Fontainebleau. He doesn't return any calls. Should we take the ad? So I said, I'll call Gleason. I called Gleason. This is heartbreaking. I called Gleason. I said, Jackie, it's Larry. He said, yeah. Uh, the thing for Monday night, is it set? And he goes, what thing? Oh, Jackie, the Sinatra, he says, did I tell you, pal? If I told you, I told you. Okay. I told the station they ran the ad. Now it's Monday night. Oof. Nine, three-hour talk show. Five minutes to nine. Everybody in the station stayed. The salesman stayed. The secretaries, no one went home. A limo pulls up. Frank Sinatra gets out of the limo, and he had to walk up some stairs, and I'm at the top of the stairs, and all he goes is, uh, which one's Larry King? Okay, let's go. Walk in, we sit down. Now, what do you say? Again, go back to honesty. Yes. The show begins, the guy says, now here's Larry King. I said, my guest tonight is Frank Sinatra. Why are you here? <laughs> I didn't pretend anything like my good friend. Yeah. Why are you here? He said, five years ago, I was working at Ben Maxick's Town and Country Casino in New York. It was closing night, I had laryngitis. And I called up Jackie Gleason. I said, Jackie, you've got a full house. Would you come do your show? Jackie came and did my show, Sinatra said. And I walked him out to his car. And I said, Jackie, I owe you one. When I'm at the Fonable, I got a message from Gleason. I called him up. I said, Jackie, it's Frank. And he said, Frank, this is the one. <laughs> really? Called in a favor. Oh, my God. In the end of the story, yeah. Sinatra says to me, at the end of the show. You want to come see my show? I said, yeah, no. I'm, I'm making $80 a week. He says, uh, okay, pick the night, pick the night. He says, okay, ringside, you're my guest. Okay, I got a ringside seat to see Frank Sinatra at the Fontainebleau. I got a list of girls to call. Because <laughs> I know. Of course you do. That this will be Scoresville. <laughs> so I call up one of these girls and... And I said, do you want to you go see Frank Sinatra? Naturally. Sir. So I had $20 to my name. $20. So I figured out. $15 for the waiter and $5 for the car. And I get paid Monday. I got $20, sir. In the middle of the show, having dessert, Sinatra would always stop in the middle, sit on a chair, drink some tea, and talk to the audience. And he suddenly says... Oh, there's a young man here tonight, and I just did his show. He's a young guy. He's really, I don't do many interviews, but this guy's really terrific. Larry King, stand up and take a bow. 
I was eating Cherry's Jubilee. <laughs> Ice cream with cherries. Right. Stood up, hit the table with cherries. All the cherries falling on, dripping with cherries. Everybody's breaking up, oh laughing. Whenever he would see me after that, he goes, cherries. <laughs> and end of story, I'm driving the girl home. She had some good night. We're going to her house. Yeah. She says, why don't you stop and get some coffee to go? I have no money. So it's a royal castle. Oh. Pull into the parking lot. I go into the restaurant, I come back out and said, they can't change a hundred olive oil. That's great. That's really a great story. Oh my God. She bought the coffee. Oh. That's Sinatra, you know. Nobody really, uh, he, he didn't, uh, nobody, he, the comedians were afraid of him. But he loved Don Rickles. Loved Rickles. And, and early on, uh, I, well, Rickles was doing the show from midnight to five. This is in uh, Vegas. Vegas. Uh, see, he had no, nowhere to meet a girl. It's wrapped up in this show till six in the morning or five in the morning. So, uh, but then he found a pretty girl for lunch. And he put her there. And she's looking at her and she's talking and it's beautiful and everything. And out of the corner of his eye, he sees Sinatra come into this restaurant on the other side. And he's thinking, what am I going to do? So he says to the girl, I'll be right back, okay, honey? Don't go away. He leaves. He goes over to, and he knows Frank. And he says, Frank, why don't you come over? I've got a girl over there. It'd be great uh, if you say, hey, Don, you know? It would really help me with her. Sinatra said, okay, sure, I'll be over in a few minutes. Five minutes later, Rickles is there looking at the girl, you know, and Don, and, and uh, what's, Frank comes over, stands right there, says, Don Rickles, how are you? And Rickles looked up to him and said, not now, Frank, I'm with people. <laughs> That's the way it was. True sure, and he never went back to him. Never went back never to him. Never went back to him. <laughs> I saw he would pulverize Sinatra from the stage. Yes. Frank, Frank, <laughs> you're an old man. <laughs> Take some cookies, some warm milk, go up to your room. Oh, Frank, the chambermaid. Frank, the lady's changing sheets, Frank. You had to have her. Four o'clock, Frank. <laughs> yeah. It's great. Oh, great. Listen, we got some, uh, okay. some letters here. We're from running close on time. Okay, let's go through right now. Who was the most difficult one to interview? The most exciting or satisfying, at least? Which well, it's one? hard to pick one because there have been so many. The yeah, I know. You've had so many. Jackie Robinson, Seven Presidents, Brando, Sinatra. I've had a great career. You've had a great career. You yeah. know them all. The toughest interview for me was Robert Mitchum. I think he may have been drunk, but all his answers were one word. You know? One word, huh? You know, like, uh, yep, nope, yep, nope. <laughs> I said to him, what was it like to be directed by some great director? He says, seen one, seen them all. No kidding. Yeah, what do you think of wow, Al Pacino? Don't know him. Oh, but did you get a little frightened there that this no, guy... I started... just struggled through, and then you when we finished, through? he said, how did I do? <laughs> Funny line. What advice would you give to a uh, current college student pursuing a career in television? What makes for a good interview? Well, for, first, for a career today, you got to go to college, I think. My day, you didn't. You didn't go. You didn't need it. I didn't. You did. Uh, <laughs> you did. He's right. But I remember my heart attack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, I would say to, to a young man or woman, it's a great profession, major in communications at school, work on the college radio, go to this college that has a radio station or television station and be prepared to travel, be prepared to go to some small town and just work as hard as you can, get in. If they ask you to clean up the, to sweep up the floors, take mm -hmm. the job, because once you're in. That's right. Once you're in, you're there. It's a, it's, there's no better profession. And the secret of good interview is to listen to the answers, 
ask short questions, and it should be a question, not a statement. A lot of these interviews I see sometimes, they make a statement rather yeah. than a question. And follow up. You know, because you remember Bob and Ray? Yeah. Bob and Ray were two great radio and They were great. And they used to do voices. And one of their voices was a guy named Wally Ballou. Wally Ballou. Wally Ballou was, he was one of them would do it. And Wally Ballou, they called him the world's greatest interviewer. <laughs> Wally Ballou, man on the street. Let's go to Wally Ballou. And he goes, Wally Ballou here. I'm on the street and on Broadway in New York. I just, world's greatest interviewer. Here comes a man right along. Yes, sir. Okay, where do you live? Great Neck, Long Island. Oh, you live in Great Neck, Long Island? Yes. Are you married? Yes. I have a wife and two kids. What do you do for a living? He said, I am a spy for the Soviet Union. <laughs> have you seen South Pacific? <laughs> My God, Not really? listening. <laughs> uh, so the secret is listen. All right. What was the most important broadcast you've ever aired? Was there one that really stands out? Two would, yeah, would be Okay, the, give two. The, the Gore-Perot debate on NAFTA. Uh-huh. It was the highest audience in cable history, 20 million. Mm-hmm. For a regularly scheduled show, I think that's still number one for a regularly scheduled yeah. show. We broke down the phone lines, and NAFTA was going to lose in the mm -hmm. Senate. And that night, Gore really cleaned his clock. He really, he won that debate hands down. And NAFTA passed, and Clinton called me up and said, I owe you, which was a pretty nice thing. Yes, absolutely. And the toughest was 9-11. Yeah. In fact, two weeks after 9-11, I came to New York, went through that whole zone with the fire chief, mm -hmm. went to the burn center, and that night, you and Rudy Giuliani yeah. were my guests. That's right. That's and that right. was yeah. a night. That was a great, great night. Uh, that was, where were you that morning? Were you on the air? Yes, I was, yeah. I was on the air for it was, five minutes. It was nine o'clock. Yeah. It was like a little after nine. A little bit after nine. They cut it off, you know, and covered it uh, back there. All right, how about this one? When you feel down, and I don't think you're ever down to tell I'm you. down. I'm what married, am I down? What keeps you going? I love what I do. You love, you love television, you love I, I, uh, radio. Don't you love what you do? I, I did, yeah. If you love what you do, I had Malcolm Gladwell today. I interviewed him this morning. And I said, what do, what do all successful people have in common? Yeah. Every successful person has in common, they love what they do. Mm-hmm. They love. That's, that's why they're still there, yeah. What's the most interesting thing someone ever said to you in an interview? Well, I don't know. You know, you've got a lot of interviews oh, over the years. One interesting thing someone said to you. Oh my Can't handle it. Huh? I interviewed a hitman. Oh, my God. <laughs> For the mafia. Thanks a lot, everybody. <laughs> Who had killed like 11, 12 people. And he said the one job he could, this one guy he was out to kill, couldn't get him. Uh -huh. He was, had him in his sights one night, and the guy bent over, and a bullet went right over his head. Wow. And he went here and went there. And finally had him in the back row of a movie theater. Mm. And he took the axe from the fire alarm to go down, and the guy moved. Oh. The axe went into the seat, and he gave up the job. No kidding. I just remembered that. That's weird. Yeah, I had a Wow. Why would I How long ago was that? Was you were in Washington, or L.A., or? It was the day you I went in for surgery. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's true. I think true. that's it. Reed, well, I hope you enjoyed this. I enjoyed it. You know, uh, when, uh, before he left uh, CNN, uh, I'm telling you, uh, 9 o'clock was 
But nothing else was on in, in the TV. You were always there and always great. And I, and I loved it. These days, it's, it's a, still a great, uh, CNN is still great, but it's one newscast after another. Breaking news. Breaking news. It is news. breaking news. Everybody's breaking news. But you at nine o'clock, you know, brought Thank everybody. You. It was great. Breaking news, the sun came out this morning. <laughs> Maria, one last question for you, Regis. All right. Take me through your typical day since leaving live. Are you asking me? Yeah, you. It's a lady here. What's your, what do you do? What do you do a typical day when you're not scheduled for anything? What do you do? Boy, I'm not doing much. Uh, Are you bored? Yeah, a little bit. I look at the wife and I get, I get bored. <laughs> <laughs> and he wants to know, how's Mr. Trouble, your grandson? Oh, Mr. Trouble. He's a little guy. He wants, wants me to take him to Notre Dame, which I'm going to have to do this year. He's eight years old. He's on a baseball team. But all of a sudden, he wants to come to Notre Dame. So we're gonna, I'm going to take him to show the field. Why do you call him Mr. Trouble? That's his nickname, Mr. Trouble, yeah. He gets into trouble? Well, he used to, but not anymore. He's eight years old now. When he was uh, three or uh, two, one of those years, you know, little trouble. Thank you all very much on behalf of Reese. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92yondemand.org. <laughs>